Right, well, if you brought a Bible, I'll encourage you to grab it, and uh, you can turn to the Gospel of John, and we are going to be uh, continuing in chapter 8 this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible or you forgot one, there should be a, a black hardcover one in front of you, and you can feel free to use that. I forgot to mention that because it's spring break, um, the kids are going to stay in with us, but Emily has prepared um, some activity bags for some of the younger kids, and I can already see some parents have them, but if you want to go grab uh, an activity bag for your kids to keep them a little bit occupied, uh, feel free to do that. So I'm not going to do much by way of um, recap, but I just want to read our passage, and then we'll just spend some time uh, walking through it. So John 8, and we'll start in verse 12. So it says this, again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees, the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet, even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them, again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. The reading of God's word. So there's a lot here, and we want to just walk our way through, but just to, to kind of make sense a little bit of the context. If you remember last week, Stan uh, did a great job preaching on uh, verses 1 to 11, but he mentioned at the beginning that that story, the woman caught in adultery, and you know, he who was without sin cast the first stone, that story is not in the earliest 
and most reliable manuscripts we have. Now, that's not to say that it didn't happen and that it's not Scripture, but most scholars think that this was added in, verses 1 to 11, at a later date. It wasn't a part of John's original gospel. Now, there's nothing scandalous about that, and I would encourage you to come to the what is the Bible and how do we read it course, because we're going to talk about stuff like this. This is not like, <gasps> it wasn't in the original manuscript. There is no scandal here. We just go, yeah, it was added in by a scribe later on as stories of Jesus were being remembered. But here's why I mention it. It makes a lot of sense that verse 12 of chapter 8 originally happens right after verse 52 of chapter 7. And the reason I say that is because the flow of the text goes, well, yeah, it's fairly obvious that this was added in at a later date. Because if you remember, Jesus is in the, the temple area on the last day of the feast, and he's teaching people, and, and they get to the end of chapter 7, and the Pharisees, and, the, and if you remember, Nicodemus is like, well, shouldn't we give him a fair trial? And the Pharisees go, well, are you one of him too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And then if you jump to verse 12, it says, again, Jesus spoke to them. So it just makes sense that this is kind of continuing on the last teaching discourse that we wrapped up in chapter 7. And so this is what it's, it says, verse 12, uh, 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 Jesus begins by saying, I am the light of the world. Um, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. And so here we have, and we've talked about it earlier, uh, another I am statement. And in the Greek, the original language of the scriptures, it's ego, imai, which means I am. And what, what happens multiple times in the Gospel of John is Jesus makes some very absolute I am statements. He's taking the name of God, Yahweh, I am, and he's applying it to himself. And there's several very obvious statements like this. This would be one of them. I am the light of the world. Probably the most clear example of this is what we're going to look at next week, the very end of chapter 8, where Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And everyone picks up stones to, to stone him to death because it's blasphemy. You can't call yourself God. But there's other I am statements that maybe aren't as um, obvious as that, right? I am the bread of life. We, we looked at that uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, I am the light of the world. That's our text this morning. I am the door of the sheep, he'll say in chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection of the life and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. All of these I am statements where, where uh, Jesus is taking the name of God and he's kind of applying it to himself. So those are fairly obvious, but there's also um, more veiled, hidden I am statements sprinkled throughout the gospel of John. And there's actually two or three in our text as well this morning. And so that's where Jesus, in the beginning of our text, he says, I am the light of the world. Now, during the Feast of Booths, right, this is the, the, the setting, the Feast of Booths has just concluded, but during that week-long celebration, they were remembering how God provided for them in the wilderness, how he led them, and we talked uh, a few weeks ago about the different water rituals that they would do, right? The priests would take a picture, and they would all do this processional 
out of the temple and then fill up the pitcher and they would sing songs and they would blast trumpets and, and shake, you know, different things and hold up fruit. And it was this huge ritual thing and then pour the water out. And it was in the midst of that that Jesus stands up and he says, if anyone's thirsty, come to me. So massively significant. So is it significant that Jesus, right at the end of the Feast of Booth, says, I am the light of the world? And it's massively significant. There were also rituals throughout the Feast of Booths that involved lights. Four huge lamps were lit in the, the, what was called the temples, the, the court of women, is where um, the women were allowed to come in the temple. But four massive lamps were lit, and actually the wicks were made out of the priest's worn-out clothes. Every year the priest would, <laughs> it's like, I got my new clothes. And they would make wicks out of their old clothes. And every day of the festival, of the feast, each night these massive lamps were lit, and the light would illuminate the entire temple area and people would gather at night to dance not Mennonite dance and sing I'm just kidding they would dance and they would sing praises to God and what it was right it was a reminder who led them through the wilderness how did God manifest himself to lead them as a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire and so they would light these lamps and be, hey, remember how God led our people as a pillar of fire. And he shone light for them. And that's what these rituals were supposed to remind them of. So think about that. You have rituals all week, lighting lamps and dancing and praising God. And then at the very end, right, the day after, Jesus stands up and he goes, I am the light of the world. It's, it's like, right, and I, it's not in there, but it's like Jesus is saying, hey, do you, do you remember all the lights in Jerusalem and how it shed, those temple lights shed its glow over the city? Do you remember that? Jesus says, I am the true light. Whoever follows me won't walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That, those words must have come with stunning force, just like Jesus saying, do you remember all your water rituals? Well, if you're actually thirsty, come to me. Now, when you think of the Jewish scriptures, there, there's lots of passages about this idea of the coming of the light of salvation. I'll just give you two. Psalm 27.1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Isaiah 9, promising this Messiah that was going to come. Isaiah 9.2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. And Jesus says, I am the light. As Jesus is saying this, what, he's, what he means is he's offering salvation to those who believe. He's bringing salvation. He's saying, if you walk, if you follow Jesus, you won't walk in darkness, but you'll have life. You'll have salvation. So how do the Pharisees respond? Verse 13, the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself your testimony is not true. So verse 13 now takes a massive detour. Uh, the idea of Jesus being the light of the world is not mentioned again in chapter 8. Right? It starts off this discourse of Jesus' teaching, and yet the Pharisees, what they're doing is they're responding to that claim by asking him about his, his authority to make those kind of claims. Right? You're saying that you're light of the world, what kind of authority do you have to say that? What witnesses do you bring in order to back up what you're saying? And I love that Jesus willingly goes on the detour with them. He doesn't go, yeah, 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 yeah. 
I already talked about that. Let's get back to this me being the light thing. He just goes on the detour with them. And, and what he's going to do is gonna, he's going to show them why he can be the light of the world. And what he's going to ultimately say is that he is the light of the world because he's from the Father and he's one with the Father. So they respond, right? You're bearing witness about yourself and your testimony is not true. Now, here's what's really interesting about this response. This is the first time in the gospel that the Pharisees are speaking directly to Jesus besides Nicodemus, right? Most other times in the Gospels, how John presents it is that the Pharisees are, are talking about him to one another, or they're plotting against him, or they're speaking to one another or to others about him. This is actually the first really clear time when the Pharisees are directly addressing Jesus in this kind of face-to-face confrontation. And since chapter 5, it's been kind of like building, hasn't it? All this tension is building between Jesus and the authorities. And now we have this kind of face-to-face confrontation. And what it does is it, ac- it actually echoes back to chapter 5. If you've been um, tracking with us through this gospel, some of you are probably going, wait, didn't we already talk about witnesses? And we did, right? So roughly timeline, about a year ago, Jesus was in Jerusalem and he taught and they asked him about what witnesses do you bring? And if you remember, Jesus brought up a bunch of witnesses. He says, my father is a witness, my miracles is a witness, the Holy Spirit, the prophets, the scriptures. He's saying all of those things back up what I am saying. So it's like we're repeating, like Jesus is probably, I've already told you all this, right? We've already gone over this. Now in Deuteronomy, it did speak of two to three witnesses that were needed for capital cases and criminal proceedings. So if someone in Israel you know, brought um, uh, someone to the authorities and said, hey, this guy murdered my friend. One person's testimony, not enough. You needed two to three uh, witnesses for those kind of capital cases and criminal proceedings. And then what what happened is that the Mishnah, the Jewish writings that aren't scripture, but just kind of expanded on the law, and a lot of the Pharisees and the scribes kind of added different laws. The Mishnah adopted that idea, but then applied it to all these other legal situations. It wasn't just criminal proceedings. It wasn't just capital cases. It was like all of these other situations. You have to have two or three witnesses. So here's how Jesus responds, verses 14 to 18. He says, even if I bear witness about myself, it's true. And I know where I came from and where I'm going, and you don't, essentially. You judge according to the flesh. I don't do that. And even if I do, it's true. And we would ask, well, why? Well, he says, it's not just me, but it's me and the Father bearing witness about me. And the law says two witnesses is true, Right? He says that in verse 17, your law, it's written that the testimony of two people is true, but he says, I bear witness about myself, and the Father does too. So it's interesting how Jesus responds. If Jesus had left it at uh, just verse 14, even if I bear witness about myself, my testimony's true. If he had just left, left it at that, then he would have contradicted himself, right? Way back in chapter 5, verse 31, So we know that Jesus doesn't contradict himself. He doesn't say in chapter 5, you're right, witnesses are very important. And now he goes, well, I can witness about myself. No, that's not what's happening here. 
because he continues, he clarifies, and he says that although he's testifying about himself, he's not testifying by himself. He says, the Father testifies about me. And so here is the the fundamental flaw in the Pharisees' argument. Um, They're right that at least two witnesses were required for the conviction of an offender, but it wasn't required for his acquittal. And so what I mean by that is that according to the Jewish law, you needed two additional witnesses to prove someone's innocence. So if so, like prove, think about the murder case. Hey, this guy murdered my friend. And if you have two witnesses that were like, no, he didn't. They, he was with me and blah, blah, blah. Then you go, okay, you have witnesses. You're now innocent. So here's what the flaw is, though. The Pharisees are coming to Jesus assuming that he's the accused one. But according to Jesus and how he responds, it's not a matter of establishing his own innocence, but actually it's the guilt of his accusers. They're the guilty ones, not him. What are they guilty of? Conspiring murder against him. And so for the purpose of what he's doing, two witnesses was sufficient. He's going, you are the guilty ones, not me. And so remember, and again, this is a thing to remember, Jesus has already provided more than enough witnesses to satisfy them. My Father, the Scriptures, the Prophets, the Holy Spirit, my miracles. It's like, how many more witnesses do you want? And really, what verse 18 is, is it's an argument from lesser to greater, right? If the testimony of two men was valid in a court of law, how much more is the testimony of one man plus God, (laughs) right? He goes, I I bear witness about myself, but do you know who else bears witness about me? God. How, How much greater is that witness than just two people? So it's amazing how he responds and they they ask then well like where is your father and i think there's a couple of things here they're they're not understanding that god the father is jesus father right they're probably thinking joseph or do you have a father that we don't know about where is this father that you keep talking about and jesus says you you know neither me or my father if you knew me then you would know the father as well And verse 20 says that now he's in the treasury, uh, teaching in the temple, and no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And we've seen that a few times, and we'll continue to see that. Jesus teaches, and people get so angry at what he says, and yet no one arrests him because it wasn't his time yet. So verse 21, Jesus continues. He says, I'm going away, and you will seek me. And uh, you will die in your sin. So what is, what is he talking about when he says, I'm going away? He means his death and his resurrection and his ascension to heaven. He says, I'm, I'm going away. And you will seek me. Now, we have to be clear. This doesn't mean that when Jesus goes away, the Pharisees are going to seek him because they want to believe in him. What he means is, Jesus says, I'm the Messiah, and I'm going away, and when I'm gone, you will seek another Messiah. And what's going to be the result of that? You will die in your sin. And it's interesting to me that the sin here is singular. He doesn't say, you will die in your sins. He'll say that a little bit later. But here he says, I'm going to go away, you're going to seek a Messiah, and you'll die in your sin. And the sin that he's talking about is the sin of unbelief, of rejecting Jesus. Here's the one who actually offers salvation. And Jesus says, I'm going to leave 
and you're going to die in your sin of unbelief. Where I go, you cannot come. And, and, and that just logically makes sense. If you reject Jesus, you can't go where Jesus is going, which is to the Father's presence, to, to heaven. You're, you can't go there if you reject Jesus. So here's how they respond, right? And they, they're just grasping at straws, trying to figure out what he's talking about. The Jews said, verse 22, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. So if you remember, in chapter 7, uh, Jesus talks about, you know, I'm leaving. And, and their response there was, well, is he going to go out to the, 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 the dispersion among Greeks and teach the Greeks? Is that where he's going? And now Jesus says, I'm leaving and you cannot come. And they go, well, is he going to kill himself? Like, is that what he's talking about? Trying to figure it out. Now, here's the irony. Jesus is not going to commit suicide, but he is going to willingly give his life for our salvation. So the, uh, what they say is just ironic. As we read it, we go, man, they were almost right. He is going to die. He's not going to just go and commit suicide, but he's going to willingly give his life. So verse 23, Jesus presents this dichotomy. He says, you're from below and I'm from above. You're of this world I'm not of this world, right? So this is why they're having trouble understanding him. He says, I'm from above. You're from below. I'm not from this world. You're from this, you, you are from this world. You can't understand what I'm talking about. And then in verse 24, he says, I told you that you would die in your sins, plural. And I think what that means is that the sin of unbelief, singular in verse 21, if you have a, the sin of unbelief, that you don't believe in Jesus, what that often does is that it mushrooms into sins, plural, living in darkness. Now, here is what is so amazing about Jesus' words. I told you that there's times in the Gospel of John where the I am statements are very abundantly clear. And there's also times in the Gospel of John where the I am statements are um, quite veiled and cryptic and verse 24 and 28 are, are one of these moments because jesus says in verse 24 i told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that i am he you will die in your sins and then in verse 28 jesus says when you have lifted up the son of man then you will know that i am he here's what's interesting in the original language there is no he added on in the original manuscripts that we have, it doesn't say, I am he. All, it said, Jesus, all Jesus says is, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And then he says, then you will know, right, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. So this is massive. This is, this is enough, uh, enough connection to the I am statements. That's why they respond by going, who are you? Because they would have caught up, caught on to that. Wait, did he just say what I think he said? Now, here's what's, what is also interesting. Uh, like, our, our translators put in, I am he, and there's nothing wrong with that. But also in the Old Testament, there's several pla uh, passages where this same phrase is translated in our modern Bibles, I am he, and it only refers to God. So Isaiah 41.4 this is God speaking. Who has performed and done?
witness, calling the generations from the, the beginning. I, the Lord, the first and the last, I am he. Isaiah 48, 12, listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. Um, the I am he's in Isaiah could be translated, I am the same or I am forever and the same. So for someone to take that kind of language and apply it to themselves, on the very least would confuse people going, why is he talking like this? And on the very most, people would go, are, are you saying what I think you're saying? So it's not, it's not this blatant claim to divinity like the end of chapter 8 where, where it's so obvious where Jesus says before Abraham was, I am. But it's enough that in verse 25, they respond by going, who, who are you? And that could actually be translated, who do you think you are? Which kind of changes it a little bit, doesn't it? Right? In verse 24, if Jesus literally said, From, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who do you think you are? Now, verse 26 is a, a hard verse to translate. And so Jesus says, right, if you, in the end of verse 25, when they, they say, who are you? Jesus says, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is like, I have told you so many times who I am. And then in verse 26, there's kind of this odd statement. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I've heard from him. You go, well, what is Jesus talking about here? I have much to say about you and much to judge. Um, another way, like if you, were, if you would paraphrase that from the original language to help, like, it's, it's hard to understand. But what it could say is, what can I even begin to say to you? I have many things to say about you and to judge, but the one who sent me is true and the things I've heard from him are the things I say to the world. What I think Jesus is saying is, I have many things that I want to say about you <laughs> or, or judge you, but he says, but I only say what my father tells me to say. So again, it's like, it's like Jesus is saying, I don't speak on my own initiative. I don't just go and say whatever I want to say. Jesus is saying, I hear from the Father, and then I say things. So again, he's, he's just perfectly submitted to the will of the Father. He goes, I only say what my Father tells me to say. And I love their responses that they didn't understand. They don't understand that he was speaking to them about God the Father. They're just going like, who are you? What are you talking about, Jesus? Now, verse 28 is, again, amazing. It says, when you have, this is Jesus speaking, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And he's talking about his crucifixion. They were going to lift him up on the cross. And I love, it's such an amazing statement. Jesus says, when you've lifted me up, then you'll know that I am. So think about that. What happened as Jesus was lifted up and nailed to the cross? Earthquakes. Dead people rose from, from the graves. Darkness for three hours. The temple was messed up and the, the, the temple curtain was ripped in two. And what was the statement of the guard at the cross? Truly this was the Son of God. When you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you'll know that I am. It's amazing. Now, the Pharisees all rejected that. But you have a soldier at the foot of the cross going, man, this, this guy's different. This was the Son of God. And the end result of Jesus speaking like this 
we're told in verse 30, is that many believed in him. Now, again, we've seen in the Gospel of John, does that mean that they actually believed, right? We've seen people uh, who believe in his miracles, who think he's a great teacher, but all we're told here is that as he's saying these things, many people believe in him. So I love that Jesus begins our text today with this statement, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And if you remember, we've already heard about light already in this gospel. Right at the beginning, John 1, verses 5 and 9 and 10, it says the light, this is describing Jesus, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then it says the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Even in John 3, when Jesus speaks to Nicodemus, he says this, this is the judgment, the light has come into the world. And people loved darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come to the light. And now you have Jesus in in chapter 8 saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me won't walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. And what I think we're meant to see in the rest of chapter 8 is that the Pharisees were these people who liked the darkness rather than the light. They didn't like Jesus, the true light. And they wanted to continue to walk in darkness. So we have to say, well, what does darkness mean? What is this imagery? When Jesus says, well, you don't have to walk in darkness, or when when Jesus says in John 3 that that, the people loved darkness rather than the light, what is is that imagery supposed to signify? I, I think a couple of things. One, darkness implies not knowing, which is the opposite of Jesus, the word that brings knowledge. Darkness is this idea of being spiritually and mentally blind to the light, which You'll, you'll see in chapter 9, Jesus then does a hands-on miracle to prove this. So darkness implies not knowing. I don't want to know the truth. I actually prefer just living in the dark, blind to the truth. Darkness also implies sin and evil, which is opposed to God and Jesus the Word. And darkness also in this gospel implies death. It's the opposite of the light of life that Jesus talks about. So you have darkness, which implies, I don't want to know the truth. I'm living in sin and evil, and ultimately that's going to lead to my death. And it's amazing to me that scripture tells us that there are those who prefer that, that prefer darkness. Now think about the metaphors that Jesus has already used. He's used the metaphor of hunger. He's used the metaphor of thirst, and now the metaphor of of darkness. And the amazing thing to me is that no, no human being in their right mind wants to be hungry and thirsty. Right? No one goes, man, I love hunger pains. Right? Like even uh, my wife and I are trying to eat during this like 21-day thing to try and eat better. And like I've just, I feel hungry all day. And no one goes, yay, this is awesome. And no one dying of thirst goes, woo, this feels great. Right? So those metaphors, we get those. Hunger and thirst, no one wants to be hungry. No one wants to thirst. But it's amazing to me that people living in darkness go, this is nice. I want to remain in this darkness. 
And what I think it means is that as darkness, right, metaphorical, not knowing sin and evil, death, as darkness surrounds people, they embrace it. They find refuge in it. People actually can find comfort in those shadows. So those who prefer darkness, they find truth unwelcome. They actually prefer not to, I just, I actually don't even want to know. Don't even talk to me about that. Rather than sin feeling oppressive and disgusting, they find sin appealing. And so there's this illusion that people who love darkness, there's this illusion that in the darkness, well, at least then I'm protected from judgment. It's kind of like, you know, I'm not even going to think about it. I'm just going to push the truth away. And that way there's this kind of illusion that at least I'm protected from judgment. And yet by embracing the darkness, they're placing themselves under judgment. So this is the, this is the world that we live in. Um, this is our North American culture. Chapter 3, John 3, describes, by and large, our North American culture. Now, I, the reason I say North American culture is because that's the culture we live in. I can't make comments on other places in the world. This is our reality, right? And yet, when you look around at our culture, what I see, and more and more and more, is that people love the darkness. Love it. So I began to just think, and I don't want to depress everybody, but I began to just think of examples. I mean, you think about... Um, the SOGI curriculum in this part of the world and the LGBTQ movement and the idea that we're going to actually indoctrinate kindergarten, grade one, two, three children with transgender ideology and we're going to celebrate it. And if anyone gets in the way, we're actually going to remove your children. You hear stories like this. Um, I don't know if you follow politics in the States, but um, the governor of Florida is currently trying to pass a bill that basically says children grades three and under should not be exposed to sexualizing inappropriate sex education. We shouldn't indoctrinate our children with transgender ideology. And the backlash that is coming from that is unbelievable. Like how could you do this? Um, even for major corporations, we're going to leave Florida if you keep going down this road. And, and, and what the bill says basically is that parents should be involved with these kind of conversations. It shouldn't be some kindergarten teacher telling your kids that you can be whatever gender you want. And the backlash is, how dare you do that? We love darkness. A few years ago, there was a website called Ashley Madison. And the tagline for this website was, life is short, have an affair. And it was literally an anonymous website that allowed married people to sign up to have affairs with other married people. And millions of people signed up for this. It's darkness. In 2021, uh, and I think this is a low estimate, but the porn industry roughly made $15 billion in America. Darkness. From 2007 to 2019 in Canada, in a span of 12 years, 1.2 million babies were aborted. Murdered. And what's so amazing to me is that we celebrate this. Look how progressive we are as a culture. Look how we stand up for certain people's rights. And it's just darkness. 
and people love it, and we celebrate it, and we push back against any, I know that anyone listens online, ah, Pastor Andrew's a bigot. I don't want to hear that nonsense, because we love the darkness, we do. And that's why the, these, these Pharisees hated Jesus. They hated him. Why? Because he was exposing the darkness in their hearts. And it's the same today. People hate Jesus because he comes in and he, he calls it what it is. That's wickedness. That is evil. That is darkness. And, and we're told in our passage, what is the end result of a life lived in darkness? The end result of a life celebrating sin and evil, Jesus tells us, you will die in your sins. Now, everyone dies physically, followers of Jesus or not, we all die. But those who dwell in darkness and love it and celebrate it will not only die physically, but they'll also die what the scriptures call the second death, which is eternal death. And here's what's unbelievable. We we deserve that. Like, we brought this upon ourselves. We can't look at the world and go, well, I can't believe that. I didn't, I'm not involved in that. We brought that upon ourselves as the human race. We rebelled against God, and we said, God, we can figure it out. We can do better than you. And since the fall, we've just all rejected God. And here's what God could have done. He could have said, fine, hands off, have it your way then. And yet, what does he do? The world is covered in darkness, and what does God do? He sends the light of the world. And the solution to darkness and evil and wickedness, Jesus tells us, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know. So I find it amazing that evil and darkness and wickedness nail the Son of God to a tree to shut him up, to stop him from exposing darkness and it's that very act that makes it possible for wicked, rebellious human beings to come into the light. That's why Jesus says, if you follow me, if you have faith in me, then you, you don't have to walk in darkness anymore. Right? It is Christ crucified that saves us. It's him going to his death on our behalf. And then when you place your faith in Jesus it's exactly like a light just shining on you, right? Darkness meaning not knowing and willfully ignorant. It's like all of a sudden that fades and you go, man, Jesus is who he says he is, right? That's because the light of Jesus is shining on you. And Jesus says, you don't have to walk in darkness anymore. You will have the light of life. And so Jesus saves us and his light shines on us. It exposes the darkness in us. And then like John 3, 21 says, whoever does what is true comes to the light, right? When, when Jesus saves you and his light shines on you, it's no longer, ah, I don't want that. I hate the light. When Jesus is saving you, all of a sudden you want to come to the light. And then we don't walk in darkness, but we walk in the light. Now, can I just say this? That sounds amazing, I don't have to walk in darkness. I can just go walk in the light. But can we just admit, it's hard to do. It is hard to walk that path because literally you will be swimming against the current of our entire world. 
everything else in our world says you should be going this way towards the dark. And when, when Jesus saves you, then you're walking in the light. And it's amazing and there's no greater joy. But it's hard sometimes. Because our entire world is pulling you this way. And not only that, your sinful flesh is also pulling you this way. And that's why Jesus tells his disciples, the world is going to hate you. Right? He says, the world is going to hate you. If you actually follow me, the world in sin and darkness and evil and wickedness, they're going to hate you. And he says to them, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So I think this is why Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit. I love this. Jesus doesn't just say, okay, I'm going to shine the light on you. You're going to believe in me. You're going to walk with me in the true light. Good luck. Right? He doesn't do that. One, he gives us the Spirit. He says, I'm actually going to give you the Holy Spirit to walk with you. And he's going to comfort you. And he's going to convict you of sin. And he's going to illuminate the scriptures. And you're going to become more and more like me because I'm giving you the Spirit. So he gives us the Spirit. He gives us the church. Because there's, there's something when it's like, okay, I'm going to walk this way in the light. And it's a lot easier when someone walks beside you and says, you know what, I'm going that way too. Let's do it. That's why we gather as a church. So that we go, man, let's both, whether it's your life group or Bible, or whatever it is, you go, let's all walk this way together. So he gives us the church and then he gives us his word. And we're in the word and it guides us and it convicts us and it trains us and corrects us and it provides us with wisdom as we navigate walking in this dark world. So Jesus hasn't left us alone. He's given us everything we need to swim against the stream of the world. And I want to end with this because this just, it's amazing to me. Jesus says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. But you know what he said in Matthew 5 to his disciples? He said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Isn't that amazing? Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. But now I'm going back to my Father. And I'm going to give you the Spirit. And he says, now my followers, you are the light of the world. Now that doesn't mean that we're the saviors, right? But what that means is Jesus says, you are now my representatives on earth. Go and shine the light of the gospel in the dark crevices of this world. Go and do that through your good deeds, through sharing the gospel, through how you live your life. We are actually called, not arrogantly, not uh, rudely, but we're called to expose darkness, shine the light of Jesus. And then when people go, why are you so different? Why do you live that way? We just go, because it's Jesus. It's not us. And then our, our light begins to, to shine in this dark world. So, Father, I just thank you for your word um, Jesus, I thank you that you are the light of the world. Um, God, you, you had no obligation to save us. None. 
you would have been perfectly just by just saying, fine, and destroying the universe because of our sin and wickedness and evil. And yet, God, you so loved us that you sent the light into the world. The world full of darkness and wickedness and evil, and yet, Jesus, you came. Those dwelling in deep darkness have seen the light. And so, Jesus, I know that many of us in this room have experienced that, where we've been living in darkness, and then it's like the light of the gospel and the light of Jesus shines onto us, and we run to it instead of away from it, and you open our eyes, and we don't have to live in darkness and sin anymore. So many of us have experienced that, and all glory goes to you, God. You are the one that accomplishes that in us. And yet, if we're honest, our hearts and our flesh still pull us into darkness. I mean, we still sin. Our, our minds get pulled in all sorts of directions. And then the world that we live in is dwelling in darkness, and it can be very difficult to walk in the light. And so, God, we need your help to do this. And I thank you that you've given us your spirit. You haven't left us to, tr to, to try and figure it out on our own. You give us the spirit who walks with us, who convicts us, who comforts us. You've given us each other, the church, to be able to say, hey, you're, you're, you're walking this way. Can I walk with you? And then you give us your word that comforts us and, and molds us and shapes us and gives us wisdom for how to navigate this. Thank you, God. Um, you are so faithful. And so I just pray, maybe there's those in this room that are, are still living in the dark, that maybe have heard the truth of the light of the gospel, and it's just kind of like, nah, I just don't want to do that. I've done too many bad things. Christianity is for good people. I don't want to, it's not going to be fun, or whatever the excuses are, God, I pray that the light of Jesus would just shine into their hearts and minds, and that they would know that this is true, and they would want to walk in the light and not live in darkness. And then help us as followers of you, Jesus, to be a light uh, you told us, you told your followers that we are the light of the world, that we are now your representatives. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to represent you well, that we would, through the, the things that we do and the words that we say, that we would draw people to you, Jesus. That it wouldn't just be, hey, why are you living like that? Oh, well, I'm just trying to be a good person. That we would say, the reason I live that is because I once was in darkness and Jesus, the light of the world, saved me. Can I tell you about him? God, help us to be bright lights in this world. And ultimately, that you would receive honor and glory from that Jesus. And that many men and women and boys and girls would be drawn to you and would see the light and would come to it. So, Father, thank you for our time in your word. And I just pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen.